0: Welcome to today's Huddle Insights Podcast. I'm David Campbell.
1: And I'm Don Mills.
0: And Don, we had a very interesting conversation today with former Premier Brian Gallant, and very much like the conversation we had with Wade McLaughlin, this is his first time speaking publicly related to his time in office since he left. So it's uh, some very interesting observations and thoughts around uh, uh, his time in office but also around what he think needs to, needs to happen in in New Brunswick and in Atlantic Canada
1: yeah so I I knew uh, Brian when he's premier I actually had a chance to present to him on a couple of occasions both to him and his caucus on you know the trends in Atlantic Canada which is something that I did on a regular basis to all the governments and opposition parties who would be willing to listen to me. Um, so I knew him from that point of view. Uh, you know, he's he's been out of office a couple of years. years. Like he's still 39 years old. He's a very young guy. So, um, you know, he's got lots of runway left to do interesting things. But, you know, as always, we want to talk about the current cir- circumstances in New Brunswick. And like The rest of the region, except for Prince Edward Island, um, the economy's underperformed in New Brunswick for a long time, uh, both in terms of GDP growth and job growth. So um, I used a benchmark the year before the Great Recession because that was was kind of the high watermark for each of the provinces in Atlantic Canada. If you look at the numbers, uh, for an example, in 2008, there were roughly three hundred and nine thousand full-time jobs in the province of New Brunswick uh, it was only in 2020 that that increased to three hundred and twelve thousand jobs it was basically flat almost through that whole period including Brian's uh, uh, tenure so it wasn't it wasn't very good honestly and if you look at the GDP real GDP growth the average since 2008, uh, for New Brunswick was 0.7 of 1%, where the average for Canada wasn't that great, but it was still 1.8%. So if you uh, accumulate um, growth at a deficit of 1% a year, you fall farther farther behind the national growth rate. And of course, over a period of 10 or 15 years, you have compounding on top of that, which makes that... that uh, that underperformance, even worse. So, uh, I, you know, like most politicians, Brian wants to defend his record. I get that, but you and I both know that the reality is something different in Atlantic Canada. It's one of the reasons we wanna do this podcast, David. We wanna put data out there and let people decide for themselves whether or not we are getting the kind of leadership and government that we need in this region.
0: Yeah, now look, look, this was the first time he had spoken at length about his time in office, so it's fine. I think that some of this is a defense of his record, um, you know, and he, he truly thought a lot of the policies and continues to believe that a lot of the policies that he put forward were uh, growth-oriented, uh, and he did provide, I think, in, in the conversation, some pretty good insight. Now, I am obviously in some form of a conflict of interest because I did work for his government for two and a half years as chief economist. I sat at the cabinet table, I, I listened and engaged in a lot of the big policy decisions. So the listeners should realize that, that I'm, you know, there's somewhat of a conflict there, but having said that, I think, I think like our interview with Wade McLaughlin, the former, uh, uh, um, premier of Prince Edward Island, I think these folks have good insight for us because they were inside. They did have to deal with a lot of the hard decisions. Uh, and they did see some of these challenges up close and personal. And one I'll raise quickly with you is the Atlantic immigration pilot. Of course, you and I have talked about this. Um, you know, Galant's recollection is that this was going to be a New Brunswick immigration pilot, that it all emanated out of New Brunswick. Uh, and, and you know, and I know Wade thinks differently and others think differently as well. So it's interesting that the old Chinese proverb that, you know, uh, failure is an orphan and success has a thousand fathers. And I think there's a little bit of that with with immigration. But having said that, I do think, you know, we have seen positive momentum there uh, across the region. And hopefully now, as we come out of COVID-19, those numbers should hopefully pick up again. So I don't know if you have anything else you want to add before we jump right into the conversation. Yeah, with Glenn. the
1: one the one thing I want to note, and that we uh, we had the same discussion with Scott Bryson uh, for Nova Scotia, where. The economic uh, prosperity is being limited to certain parts of the province. The same is true in New Brunswick, where the southern part of the uh, province is doing much better than the northern part. And, uh, you know, there's almost depopulation happening in parts of the north uh, uh, to the benefit of the south. And certainly, uh, it, you know, there's a linguistic uh, divide as well that uh, needs to be acknowledged And the uh, those two things, I think, uh, need to be part of any strategy any government has uh, looking ahead in um, in New Brunswick, and hopefully the municipal reform uh, work that's being done will start to address the inequities that exist uh, between the northern and southern parts of the province.
0: Yeah, so Gallant weighs in on both of those issues, Don, and you know he uses this analogy of. You know, nationally, they look at New Brunswick and Atlanta, Canada, the way that people in Southern New Brunswick look at Northern New Brunswick. It's the same sort of philosophy. Why do you care about those regions? They don't have much population. They're kind of declining. So I do think there is there is a bit of a parallel there. And I do think that you will find in his commentary that he is very supportive of helping uh, Northern and rural New Brunswick and thinks there's a policy for government there, a role for government. Although I did try to pin him down on should there be specific incentives and you'll have to listen to the full interview to hear what he says on that. Okay, without any further ado, let's uh, let's hear uh, what Brian Gallant has to say about economic development and about prosperity in Atlantic Canada. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what you're up to these days as CEO of the Canadian Centre for the Purpose of the Corporation?
2: Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to tell you what I've been up to because it, it's, I think, Uh, a center that is working on a question, a debate, a discussion that is quite important. Uh, For quite some time, there has been a global conversation regarding what we collectively want, the role of business to be in society. And for those listening, wondering what that really means, the conversation has morphed over time from uh, corporate social responsibility to ESG, shared value, uh, stakeholder capitalism, and purpose of the corporation, which is a a term that finds itself in the name of the centre. In in all of these topics, no matter how you sort of slice and dice them, at the end of the day, they're about what contributions from a societal point of view do we want to see from business? So the Canadian Centre for the Purpose of the Corporation, the way I would describe it, is an applied think tank uh, which tries to provide insights and services to Organizations of all types, not just corporations, businesses, NGOs, universities, museums, whatever type of organization uh, that may be seeking to be more purpose-driven and, and stakeholder-centric. And the Centre publishes thought leadership and research to spark dialogue and raise awareness uh, in Canada regarding the evolving role of business in society. And the Centre really does try to help uh, practically its clients and redefining, strengthening the scope of their purpose, and really start to understand the trends, the risks, the opportunities with regards to this global discussion. And in doing so, help the organization enhance its contributions to stakeholders and more broadly to society uh, through consultancy services.
0: So I think it's a really good idea. I read all about it when it was launched, and I've followed you since. And you know i i don't think it's incompatible with my view my love of free markets and capitalism right i just think that that you're going to have a situation where when you have markets when you have market economies and and competition and so on you're going to have externalities you're going to have challenges that emerge and you do want the corporations to be thinking more broadly than just the bottom line they have you know they have staff, they have stakeholders, they have communities they operate in. So I, I think what you're trying to do there makes a lot of sense. I, I just get a little concerned with some of folks when they talk about reforming capitalism, and it's through the lens of you know maybe back to socialism or even communism or some sort of fundamental dislike of the market economy. And I, unless I'm wrong, what I read you're trying to do is not incompatible with the market economy. It's just understanding that there's a lot going on there more than just profit and, and, uh, and return on capital.
2: Exactly. And if you think about it, I mean, sometimes we, we take complex arguments and, and make them more complicated. We just got to boil it down to this. I mean, any organization that is going to seek to help its stakeholders compared to an organization with everything else being equal that does not do that, well, the former is going to perform better in the long term. In the short term, maybe not. But in the long term, there's no question that an organization, a business specifically, that is there for its employees, for the communities in which they operate, for its customers, of course, uh, for the governments in which they find themselves in their territories, uh, those that are thinking about important societal questions for, for their employees and customers, such as climate change, inequalities and inequities, will do better. Uh, people will want to support them uh, during the good times. People will be happy that they're doing well, and during the bad times, more stakeholders will be there to support them. So I think it's it's really a very logical approach to having an effective organization. Uh, of course, if you start an organization today, I would certainly argue that the first thing somebody should say to themselves is, "What's the purpose of this business? What problem am I trying to solve? What what challenge that we are all facing?" Am I trying to help overcome? And in doing so, how can I ensure that I'm not creating more challenges or exacerbating other problems?
0: So it's been nearly two years since you left politics. Um, Do you miss anything?
2: Of course. uh, Elected office is one of the most fulfilling vocations one can ask for. Your, Your job description is literally wake up, do what you can to make things better for your community, your province, country, the world. That is pretty special, and, and I, I feel very lucky that I had the chance for, for quite a few years to, to be uh, in that type of position. On a personal level, I miss the uh, what I would peg an intense privilege of having your job be about discussing, debating, thinking about, and trying to influence public policy and that on a daily basis again what an opportunity it is to wake up and know that what you're supposed to do that day is figure things out and learn and and try to speak to those that can give you ideas and suggestions on how to tackle some of your community your province your country the world's most significant challenges and problems i have certainly attempted to set up my post political career, to be able to continue to try to make a difference and to influence public policy through the work at the center or, or as an advisor at Ryerson or through the commentary that I do on uh, power and politics in CBC and CBC and doing things like we're doing here today. Uh, so, so I, again, I'm still very lucky, but there's no question elected office. I mean, it, it's, it's so focused on that type of contribution that it is it is amazing. That said, I, I obviously will add that it's it's also very difficult. It's a very challenging job uh, and one in which you make many sacrifices. So my thanks goes out to all those that put up their hand to serve in public office, uh, to run in a campaign or to support those that do so at all levels of government. And uh, I know firsthand, of course, that it's, it's difficult, but I can also just imagine as I watch things uh, from the sidelines, that it's, it's also probably getting more difficult, uh, so I certainly uh, am, am very thankful that there are people that are willing to to do what it what needs to be done to, to be able to run for office and, and be able to make some of the tough decisions that we uh, that uh, we see elected office uh, people in elected office making.
0: Well, I would say f- from my perspective, you took the job very seriously. I know anything I ran up the flagpole that you read would come back all marked up, you know, with all of your comments. So you obviously took, <laughs> took it quite seriously. And I know you used to leave at night with boxes full of uh, folders and papers and things to study. So, so if hardworking is an indication, I think you, uh, you did a really, uh, a good job on that front, but are there any, you know, reflecting back now, or are there any regrets or things you would have liked to have gotten done uh, or anything that you would change now that you've had, uh, some time to reflect?
2: Well, my response to that question could take up a full podcast, I think. But um, in all seriousness, I, I would say that I try to live my life with the idea that it's it's hard to say you regret something if you did the best you can with the information and the resources you had at the time. So I don't want to sort of conflate regrets with mistakes. With hindsight, m- more perspective information, with the ability to clearly understand the circumstances. When you're looking back at what you, what you decided or, or did, you realize you made some mistakes for sure so so maybe I'll focus on that that angle. One mistake that i that I wish I could redo would be the free tuition program and the tuition relief for the middle class program. Uh, these were two programs that I was really proud of. I would say definitely near the top of my list. They got cancelled by the current government. I must say, I must admit, it, it was canceled. They were canceled. And I don't think anyone really said a peep. There was virtually no backlash from any of the other parties, including my own. advocates. stakeholders didn't really say much. Really, not a lot of, not a lot of uproar, to say the least. And that, that certainly had me reflect because I just thought it was such an important uh, investment. The, the programs, I think, go right at the heart of what we need to be doing to advance a more sustainable and equitable economy. So if I were to do it over again, I would have created the two programs at the same time. So just to refresh the memory of those listening, we had created the free tuition program for families making less than $60,000. It was certainly always our intention to create a program for the middle class as well, but we wanted to wait for a bit more fiscal room and wanted a bit more time to develop it as it would be a bit more complicated than the free tuition program because there was a sliding scale. We would look at uh, the, the size of the family, things of that nature. So for several months, the free tuition program was a standalone program. And I think we received a lot more criticisms than we would have had we rolled out both programs at the same time meaning there would have been one for for the middle class. I think it probably would have eliminated one of the more effective arguments used by those opposed to providing free tuition to those who need it most. Upon reflection, I'm not sure. It would have made a difference, but it eats me up inside that the free tuition program and and the program for uh, tuition relief for the middle class were cut. So I definitely have wondered what I could have done differently to have more people support it, uh, more people support it passionately, meaning that they would have maybe made more of a case when it was on the chopping block just a, a few years ago, uh, and, and to make sure that it was more widely supported. Uh, so again, not sure it would have made a difference, but uh, I think it, it could have. And, and if I could do it all over again, I certainly would have tried.
0: I think it's a good point. I mean, it. Of course, I was around during that those times, and I think that the challenge you have is, and I know you're a person that wants programs to be tailored to based on need, right? As opposed to everybody, and we we saw that with the with the nursing home uh, uh, discussion as well. Mm-hmm. But you do have this broad sort of constituency of voters, and if your programs don't hit enough of those, then sometimes it can have a political backlash. So I think I think you know, your instincts are right in the sense that those two programs would have covered enough parents and families to give, you know, more of a political boost than just the 60,000 and under, right? So I do, that's an interesting one. And, I, you know, I, I do think that's a debate that continues across the country, right? We we do need to get more, reduce the barriers to get people into post-secondary education. And I, and that's what you were trying to do with that program.
2: Well, I think that's right. and And I would add, I have a hypothesis that, a lot of people would probably have supported the program, the free tuition program in isolation a bit more. And as you, you mentioned, I think for sure, and that's why I mentioned it as, as probably something I would redo, even maybe more of an appetite to support it if they saw the middle-class program as well. But that said, I, I, I think a lot of people are, are so busy in their day-to-day and i find myself doing that now obviously like 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 a lot of new brunswickers you're you're just you're working away you're trying to do what you can to to be with family and and see friends and and you're living your life it's hard to follow all of the public policy coming and going it's hard to follow kind of every step of the discussion so when it comes to the free tuition program there was maybe more negative buzz around it and and that doesn't necessarily mean that people on the on the uh, if they would have kind of had the chance to look at the in-depth debate would have been opposed to the program but they were more likely to be opposed because if they only heard a little bit about it and just sort of heard the the discussion and the debate kind of from a high level on the radio while they're driving to work or dropping off their kids and and maybe they heard somebody talk about it at a at a family dinner or whatever it might be they they, they may have heard more negativity around it than than we could have had happened had we had the two programs rolled out at the same time so it, it's a lesson learned and and uh and it's always good to learn lessons the the thing that does still get to me though is that i, I just thought those two programs were were so important for our economy our social fabric addressing inequalities inequities helping marginalized communities helping those uh, that that may be from families that are struggling so it, it it is certainly one that uh, I, I would have rather have got it right than than learned a lesson.
0: So Don Mills and I started this podcast to have conversations about how we can prosper now into the future. As Premier, you had a front row seat dealing with all the challenges and opportunities. Um, the first question I would have for you on that front is why do you think GDP growth has underperformed in New Brunswick for the past? Well, really, since sort of two thousand and seven, two thousand and eight. I'm
2: excited to answer a question with regards to GDP growth. This is something that I tried very hard as premier to to communicate what I thought was happening. So, i th- this answer may be a bit long winded. So, hopefully, your your listeners will uh, will, will indulge me. Um, GDP growth has certainly underperformed in New Brunswick over the last decade. I looked at Statistics Canada because I wanted to see if the, the data had been refreshed, and I think it had to some extent, which is good. So I, I think, if I'm not mistaken, that over the last decade, the GDP has grown by about 1% or less than 1%. So, of course, it is underperformed. That said, though, I just think it is so vital for us to break down that data. By doing so, we're going to be able to tell a story, a more complete story, and it will give us a better sense of what approaches worked, or at least seemed to work, and and which ones maybe uh, didn't work as well. And of course, over the last decade, we we would have had uh, four governments I- in power, and obviously there was there were different approaches. So if if you take the provinces GDP of two thousand six. And obviously, that's not arbitrary. It's the start of the Graham government's mandate. And you compare that with the GDP of 2010. From my kind of raw calculation, looking at Statistics Canada, the GDP grew by about 2%. For the all government's mandate, if you take 2010 until 2014, you see that the economy shrunk by more than 1%. I will add this, and I remember this as leader of the opposition making the point it was the only provincial economy to do so during those four years. And and it wasn't just like a one-year blip. I think there was two out of the four years, there was a retraction, and I think there was a third year that it was basically a neutral uh, number. During our government's mandate, again, my kind of raw uh, data crunching, uh, the GDP grew by, it seems, over 4%. So. Minus 1%, 2% growth and 4% growth should not, in my opinion, all be simply put in the same bucket of, well, we're not performing very well. Some people listening, I'm sure, will say, and I certainly heard this while I was in, in elected office, well, it's all external factors that influence the performance of the economy under all the respective governments. So look, there's no doubt that this is somewhat true we're a small province, external factors play an immense role. As an example, there's no question right now, I mean, over the last uh, last 16 months or so, the pandemic has had a major impact on the GDP during the Higgs government's time in office. I mean, that's evident. But of course, a provincial government's actions will have an impact on their province's economy too. And to those that will say, oh, no, no, it's all external factors. Well, my experience is usually they'll say that when it fits whatever partisan argument they're trying to make. If they're trying to defend a government and and it's it was poor growth, they'll say, oh well, it's it's external factors. If it was good growth, they'll say, well, it's all the it's all the government's doing. So so obviously I think it's somewhere in the middle and, and external factors play a huge role, but but the actions of a provincial government play a role too. And to those that still want to debate that, I mean, then if you really believe that, I strongly doubt that you would you would say, well then, let's stop debating the economy at the provincial level because it's all external factors. I mean, I I just don't think anybody would make that argument. So clearly, the province's actions will have will have a role to role to play. So for for electoral purposes, kind of you know saying oh well over the last decade it's all been poor economic growth, I, I think is it's unfortunate because we're not really diving in to have a thoughtful analysis of which policies work for the province or at least seemed to work for the province. And again I mean you know shameless plug but so when I was premier in 2014 when I when I was sworn in the economy in the province was shrinking, uh, New Brunswick's exports were hurting, we were the only province in Canada whose population was decreasing at least at the time unless statistics Canada has refreshed their data and the province had a significant structural deficit. So during our mandate the province's economy and exports grew each year. Uh, the unemployment rate, it was hovering around 10%. When we took office, uh, that was reduced to just over 7%. The province population grew to a new high. And I have a quote here because I like it when I can get somebody else to say something that uh, that I'm advocating. The uh, and, and I'm going to quote the Atlantic Provinces Economic Council, talking about the growth rates of the population from 2016 to 18. And I quote, the highest rates... From New Brunswick since the early 1990s, and of course, uh, end quote. And of course, uh, the province had its first balanced books in about a decade during our mandate. So, with that positioning, I would argue that the factors hurting New Brunswick's GDP growth over the last decade have been the consequences of the 2008 financial crisis, the Harper government's policies on transfers and some national programming, the austerity approach of the Allward government, and of course, the pandemic. Then the flip side of that, what has worked? Well, there was 2% growth during the Graham government's time in office, which was, I think we have to put in context, um, a a mandate that found itself with the financial crisis right in the middle of it. Some will argue the 2% growth was mostly due to a major increase in government spending. Others will argue that that was exactly what needed to happen. Um, but, but nevertheless, there was growth during that time, mostly because uh, I would think because of government spending. Uh, and there's no question that during our mandate, the Trudeau government coming into power and increasing investments in infrastructure and national program helped. Uh, now, our government investments helped too. And, and we focused on reducing inequalities, inequities, uh, strengthening education and training opportunities, uh, which I think those policies helped create a stronger workforce and help. Us increase immigration levels. We invested massively in innovation, research in emerging sectors like cybersecurity. We lowered taxes for small businesses. We increased investments in strategic infrastructure as well to keep up with the federal government's investments. Uh, and we had policies to protect the environment and fight climate change. And of course, something that was very difficult for for our team, and I'm so proud of them for having done it. We we had the strategic program review, which helped us find $600 million in expenditure reductions and revenue increases, which allowed us to make the investments I just rattled off while still addressing the deficit and and being able to deliver a balanced book. So all that to say, I, I think there's a lot of external factors that have hurt the province, but I also think there have been some decisions with regards to austerity that, that really, um, unfortunately, mitigated our potential to grow the economy. And I, I think that obviously the approach that we had seemed to be working. We had other external factors that were helpful, for sure. But I also think that the investments we made that were strategic were were also uh, things that helped produce GDP growth.
0: So I think it's fair to break it out like that. I think I think you know when you look at it over a long period of time, you blend different administrations and different approaches. So I think I appreciate you. Breaking that out, although I think the growth during your years in office was related somewhat to my my being there as chief economist. (laughs) Uh, Just kidding. No Um, question. No question. (laughs) No, but I think I think I think that's fair. I I do think there are some underlying structural issues that face all. Right, and I've got a chart showing how the born in Canada workforce active in New Brunswick started to decline after two thousand and eight. And I know you you know you were interested in immigration the the Atlantic immigration pilot started uh on your watch and and you had quite a bit to do with that, so maybe we'll jump right into that question around what do you think the role of immigration and population growth was to start turning around some of those uh GDP numbers or just in general to support the province
2: they were it was crucial I would say the efforts to grow the population and specifically to focus on increasing immigration levels were at the heart of of what I would peg as some success in growing the economy during our mandate. And I want to put in perspective because you you mentioned the Atlantic immigration pilot program and there's no question that that played a huge role but I but I'll flip that a little bit. When I was lucky enough to become premier, a personal goal of mine and as somebody who uh, comes from a family uh, my mother's side uh, called the Scholten family, which uh, which is a Dutch family that came to Canada and came to New Brunswick in in the early 1950s. My grandparents came with 17 children, produced 72 first, helped produce 72 first cousins for me. Uh, certainly, uh, Im- immigration and and the the amazing way in which New Brunswickers and Canadians can support new Canadians uh, was certainly always top of mind for me and. Given the challenges we were facing, the ones that we just discussed, increasing immigration levels were, were, it was very much a personal goal of mine. So we decided as a government early on, we were going to focus on increasing public support for immigration. We We therefore determined we needed a concerted effort to communicate the benefits of immigration to New Brunswickers. Of course, immigration being a federal jurisdiction, we were going to need their support. But we strategically sought out to increase the support for immigration amongst the public because that was going to be just as important as having the federal government be on side. And frankly, you could make the argument by doing so, we'll have a better chance of getting the federal government on side. So we focused our messaging on the fact that we need to grow our population. And for those listening that, either served in government with me or or heard my speeches, this this may sound familiar. I used to say this all the time because I thought it was the messaging that, that we needed to consistently share with New Brunswickers. So we needed to grow our population through keeping New Brunswickers here, bringing New Brunswickers back here, convincing Canadians to move here for the first time, and by welcoming new Canadians here. And I would always make the point, and still to today, it's not an either or. We're not saying we have to pick one of those four things. We need to do all these things at the same time in parallel to one another to grow our population. And for those that were on the team, they uh, repeated those lines. and, And I'd like to think that that helped put in perspective why immigration was important for all of us. And I want to take a minute to thank the Liberal Caucus because... As you can imagine, it's not always easy to be the ones trying to gain public support on something that maybe people wouldn't want to have happen, or they would want us to focus on bringing their family members back to the province, or they're afraid that their children or grandchildren are going to leave the province. So I want to I want to thank and I want to congratulate the, the Liberal Caucus and team that did a great job of defending the idea that immigration had to be a part of our policies, and again, not over the idea of keeping people here and bringing people here uh, back from from other provinces or, or parts of the world, but but to do all those things at the same time. So the next thing I would add, given that we we worked on that, is is we had to then really try to convince the federal government. As an interesting tidbit, uh, Minister Dominique LeBlanc. And I originally pitched the idea that it would be a New Brunswick immigration pilot program, and we got some traction, which was great. Uh, then the other Atlantic provinces were were brought into the fold, which which is great too, and happy to happy to help deliver uh, that important program for the region. The other thing that I would say, because all of this had to happen in 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 parallel to each other, it was sort of a mixture of things. I think that really helped. Um. The Syrian refugee crisis, and the way in which New Brunswickers stepped up played a role as well. Uh, I really think it played a big role. Uh, New Brunswick, uh, I think, turned heads in Ottawa, when it accepted, at least at the time, if the statistics haven't been refreshed, the highest amount of Syrian refugees per capita in 2016. I think I think people in Ottawa were surprised by that, and and I wasn't surprised as somebody who again uh, has family uh, whose family has has uh, immigrated to to Canada and has been able to make wonderful lives for themselves in New Brunswick. Uh, it was amazing to watch New Brunswickers step up, and it was interesting because it it compelled New Brunswickers to welcome. Syrian refugees, because they wanted to help address a humanitarian crisis. They didn't do it because they said, oh, well, we have to grow our population and this is going to help our GDP and we're going to have a stronger workforce. They, It wasn't that. It was really they wanted to help these people that were that were going through an incredibly difficult time. They wanted to provide people a safe place to live, a safe place with opportunity. So it was done for a heartfelt reason, but then shortly after this influx that we had in 2016, we all really started to see the benefits of immigration. We we saw the diversity of culture it was bringing. And, and obviously in this case, because there was a bit of a jolt very quickly, it was bringing lots of diversity and perspective. It was, we were seeing some of our schools have an increase in enrollment, many for the first time in a long time. We saw economic activity coming, from From the uh, the refugees that joined us here, we saw businesses being supported and businesses starting up because of it. So I really think those those things all meshed together from kind of 2014 end of 2014 to 2000, end of 2016 played a big role in in really helping our province increase immigration levels, understand the importance of it. And and really contribute to trying to retain the new Canadians that chose New Brunswick as their home. Uh, so so I was very proud of what we were able to do as a government, but but it wasn't just us. I mean, we were a partner, the community leaders, and the the families that stepped up to welcome the Syrian refugees, and the businesses that helped bring in new Canadians uh, to the province through the Atlantic Immigration pilot program i mean it was it was beautiful to see and i think it had a huge impact on on our um economic growth that we were able to enjoy during those four years
0: but just to be clear how how was that decision made how was it decided that new brunswick would attract or or receive the largest number of syrian refugees adjusted for population size
2: it was interesting because i'm not sure there was sort of a moment that somebody was in a meeting and said hey this is this is what we're going to do. I, I think it was New Brunswicker stepping out. Now we we saw it happening in real time, and and having the goal of increasing immigration in the province, we saw the sort of heartfelt efforts of of people from all over the province in welcoming Syrian refugees. And we thought to ourselves, this is yet another opportunity. It's an opportunity for us to make a huge difference in a humanitarian crisis. A, an incredible difference. I mean, you can't even fathom, I'm sure, the difference that we made for for the people and families that were able to come here. And of course, it was a way in which to, again, increase immigration levels. It was a way to have a, a group that would have many uh, shared commonalities be able to come together, which is often very helpful in, in helping people be able to make it in a new country where they have a support system around them. So we were very excited about the idea of of making this difference, but at the same time being able to reap some of the benefits of immigration. And, and also, I mean, I don't know if I realized it at the time, but I think you could probably implicitly feel it. You could just, you you could just sense that people were, were welcoming them with open arms. People were literally calling some politicians saying, well, we're trying to get a Syrian refugee here. Like we want, we want to do it now. We want to have a family come here now. Like, it was quite something to see, where people were sort of almost almost upset that they haven't uh, they hadn't been able to help a Syrian refugee or or, or a Syrian refugee family yet. Uh, so so it was such a turning point, I think, and and I think I think we've always had that as New Brunswickers, we always had this willingness to help. But there's no question in my mind that there are people from Ottawa that were surprised. And and look, I'll, I'll be blunt with you, there's a lot of people in Ottawa were probably thinking, oh, you know, kind of. New Brunswick and Atlantic Canada, they're they are a bit more rural than some of the larger urban centres. Not sure they're as open to immigration as, as again, some of the larger centres. So I think we turned some heads. And by doing so, I think the federal government were all that much more interested in helping us with the idea of increasing our immigration levels for the Atlantic Immigration Pilot Program. So that's why I, I, I think in isolation, both those initiatives would have been helpful. But I think them happening at the same time sort of fed off of each other, and and I'll I'll say it again: very thankful that that the team stepped up as well prior to all of this happening, going into communities talking about how immigration had to be a part of our population growth strategy. Of course, in parallel to keeping New Brunswickers here, bringing them back, bringing new new people here from the country to, to New Brunswick for the first time, uh, and and all of that that osmosis of those of three things I think really helped us boost our, our levels. And I, I think we saw with the decline of the population before we became government and the, the turning point that we saw in our mandate, I think, I think it made a huge difference.
0: Yeah, we are, I think, seeing quite a bit of support now for immigration, even in rural areas, right? We, uh, the Multicultural Council did a tour of 15 communities. I was involved in that tour and we had places like Chipman and Woodstock and, and uh, St. Stephen and Karaket uh, um, uh, all sort of engaged and all very interested in, in immigration as one way of helping to grow their population in the future. So I think that did really, that was a turning point somewhere in the 2015, 2016, 2017 time frame. And I hadn't heard it articulated as a, as a link between the refugees, Syrian refugees, and the AIPP. But I think that now that you've described that, I do think that those two things did kind of work in tandem.
2: Well, I'm happy to hear that communities are still open and and it doesn't surprise me because we've seen the benefits. I mean, again, we've seen because we have more people that have called New Brunswick home, whether it's because they came here uh, from other parts of the country or other parts of the world, uh, we're, we're all benefiting. We're benefiting from increased diversity and perspective. It's, it's great for our, our culture and social fabric. It's helping our GDP growth. It's helping our businesses have the workforce they need. So, so I, if that's something that our government contributed to, I'm, I'm immensely proud of it. Uh, but again, I mean, the credit goes to New Brunswickers. And in that, that story of osmosis, I mean, it's, it's people that stepped up on the Syrian refugee crisis because their hearts were going out to fellow human beings that were struggling that were that were um, in need of support. Uh, so uh, what a beautiful story it is when you think of it from that perspective.
0: I still worry. It's, for me, it's still a little bit of a question mark because as we move forward, it's my best guess is that we're going to have to attract even more immigrants um, in the coming years to offset the boomers as they retire from the workforce. So we're probably going to need to get up to around 7,500 to even possibly 10,000 a year or more um, do you think New Brunswickers? You you have a sense of this. You traveled the province. You met New Brunswickers in every corner of the province during your time in office and before that. Do you think we're ready as a province to to amp it up even more and see thousands of immigrants, you know, flowing into the uh, Acadian Peninsula and and uh, Madawaska and, and other parts of the province, or do you think there's going to be pushback in that uh, the political communications that you talked about earlier? Is, is going to be fundamental.
2: Uh, it'll be fundamental for sure. I mean, we can take nothing for granted and we, we need to continuously talk about the approach that we have as a province, as a country and, and why it's thoughtful and why it's also addressing other concerns and priorities of, of New Brunswickers. I mean, it's it's very normal and expected that people will say, well, I would really like you to focus on having my children be able to, to, to live, work, grow here in the province. And I would like to see my sister who moved away uh, out west or to, to Ottawa come back to the province uh, if they so choose. So I, I think that's completely normal. So we have to, I, I, I would suspect, stay stay um, very focused on the messaging that we want all of those things to happen at the same time. When it comes to sort of moving forward and, and the increased levels that we need that you mentioned, which I, which I tend to agree with, um, I say 10 because I, I definitely agree with it. I just don't know the exact number. So so uh, I'll, I'll take a leap of uh, faith and, and say that you you definitely may have done the math. Um, I think for that to happen, we have to recognize something and we have to tell ourselves a hard truth. And I want to be really clear, this isn't a hard truth specific to New Brunswick. It's a hard truth specific to the country. We can do a better job of helping new Canadians integrate into all of our communities. And and that, that includes Toronto, it includes Montreal, it includes Vancouver, and it includes New Brunswick. And some listening will be surprised because they'll say, well, I think that it's going pretty well in Toronto, isn't it? That's where often if we lose somebody that we have recruited, for the lack of a better word, word to come to New Brunswick, we often will end up losing them to the larger centres that I just rattled off, such as Toronto. Well." There there are some surveys and studies that show that a lot of people, when asked, a lot of new Canadians, when asked, will say that they are very happy they came to Canada. But if you dig deep, it will become clear that they're happy because they feel that they have given an immense opportunity to their children. They feel that their children have been able to integrate, that they have been Given a better life, that they have tons of opportunity, that they are that they are really uh, happy and doing well in the country, or at least more so than they would be, relatively speaking, uh, in other parts of the world. And we should be proud of that because Canada is uh, obviously we're biased, David, you and I, but it is the best country in which to live. So that's great, but then the person, the first generation. New Canadian, the, the feeling of integration and acceptance and, and opportunity is mixed, to say the least. And I think I'm being maybe a little generous by saying it's mixed. Often, first-generation uh, immigrants to the country don't feel they're able to integrate as much. They don't feel they have as much support as they would need. They aren't able to get jobs they feel they're qualified for, uh, and so on. So then those listening will say, okay, but but if that's the case, then why is it again? Are they going more to Toronto and maybe the other larger centers? My hypothesis, and I would think some research would back this up, is that there are communities there to support them that are going through the same thing. So they often will go to a larger center, not because they want the amenities of the larger center, not because of necessarily just the 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 economic opportunity that comes from the larger center, but it's because there'll be a community of interest, maybe more of a, of a critical mass of new Canadians, often maybe from the same regions or countries that they're from, that can help them and that can support them. So if somebody listening, if people listening say, yeah, that makes sense to me, then that means we all across the country Especially in New Brunswick and Atlantic Canada, given the challenges that we face with regards to our our aging population, uh, we need to admit that hard truth. And then we need to take the next steps, which is to find out exactly how can we do a better job of supporting new Canadians? How can we ensure they have economic opportunity that they feel socially accepted that they have mentorship that they have people that they can just call if they just don't understand something that we do in this country or this province or they don't understand something structurally or or socially or or some of the customs that we all sort of have have learned to understand and, and they just don't so I think we need to do better there and and if we do better there i think at least with the current federal government there'll be an appetite to increase our immigration levels and again it goes back to that osmosis when they when Ottawa saw that we were doing such a good job with with accepting and helping Syrian refugees. And then they saw that through the Atlantic Immigration Pilot Program, we were doing a good job of, of retaining those that were coming here. They became more and more ready to give us higher levels. So I think all of these things need to happen if we're going to hit the levels that you, that you talked about uh, a while ago, David.
0: So we could talk about that for an hour, I'm sure it's an incredibly important topic, but I've got three or four things I need to run by you and we've only got a few (laughs) minutes left here. So I do want to switch um, gears a bit and talk about the difference between northern and southern New Brunswick and how can we ensure the north can grow and prosper. Now, you can cut that however you want, because some people would say that's more urban, rural and not necessarily north, south. Although I do think it's more north-south personally because we do have urban centers in the north, small, but Mir- Miramichi Bathurst, Camelton, those are small urban centers, Edmonston. So uh, some people would say that's a, you know, a French-English thing. So I, I would ask you to define that however you want, but how do we ensure northern New Brunswick can grow and prosper in the years ahead?
2: <coughs> well, I'm really happy you're asking this question. Uh, it is important on many levels. One one way in which it's an important question is that I think those who would argue that we are investing too much to support northern New Brunswick, and I would add to your to your preamble, David, I would say northern New Brunswick and rural New Brunswick, I think they face similar challenges. So to those that would say that maybe we're investing too much to support those regions, I would say to those people... That that's exactly how many in Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver, Ottawa feel about us. That's how they feel about Atlantic Canada in general. Maybe to them, they would have Halifax as an exception. Maybe if we're lucky, they'll say, well, Moncton, you know, St. John's, Charlottetown, those are maybe exceptions. But But there are people that would feel the exact same way towards us so i think we need to be cognizant of the fact that the way we treat northern and rural new brunswick becomes the precedent in which we need to live up to i mean we need to follow that precedent when making arguments to the larger urban centers across the country as to why investing in our region in atlantic canada is important and beneficial and i think by putting that in perspective it also opens up our hearts and our minds to to say, well, that's a really fair point. And and what would I say to Ottawa? What would I say to somebody from the larger centres if I were trying to list off the reasons why we should be doing more for Atlantic Canada or investing in Atlantic Canada? And then try to apply those arguments in your your thinking vis-a-vis rural and rural parts of the province in northern New Brunswick. Now, it's obviously a very very challenging topic because and i say that because i mean it's something we've been discussing for for many years and and it's still a challenge clearly but i have some thoughts and what's interesting is i'm i'm going to sort of live up to what i just said i mean the things that i i'll list off here are things that i would probably say to ottawa about atlantic canada but let's focus on the fact that uh that we're sort of talking about about rural New Brunswick and northern New Brunswick. So the first thing I would say is a general focus of governments should definitely be to address inequality and inequity. And those listening will say, well, what does that have to do with a certain region? Well, and and there's no question, this this is what I'm advocating there is sort of a provincial and national policy approach. But what we need to remember, it will indeed help communities that are struggling, both geographically divided communities and regions and those who are marginalized. It's going to help those that need most support. And they end up being often in our country and and in New Brunswick and rural parts of the province and and the country. So I'm prepared, let's use an example of one that I've already talked about, that our government's free tuition program, uh, let's add in the free childcare program, and the programs that we put in place for the middle class for tuition and childcare helped many people. Sure. But I would, I would be prepared to say that statistically speaking, it helped marginalized communities, communities in Northern New Brunswick, communities in rural New Brunswick, proportionally speaking, even more. So it's not, it's not, you know, it's very logical. It's the idea that, if you have a certain group that is struggling, then, and you have a policy to help those that are struggling, well, that certain group is going to be lifted up by it. And I think we can all agree that rural Canada is struggling a bit more vis-a-vis urban Canada. The second thing, and we've discussed this at length, that I would say for, for rural parts of the province and, and the north, population growth needs to be the focus. We need to have a strategy, clear policies, and investments to wait for it, David. Keep New Brunswickers in those regions, bring New Brunswickers back to those regions, convince Canadians to move there for the first time, and of course, welcome new Canadians to those regions. It's not either or. We need all of those things to happen if we're going to grow the population in rural New Brunswick and in the north. On immigration, we discussed this. We unfortunately do see. Some new Canadians choosing to move out of Moncton, St. John or Fredericton, to Toronto, to Montreal, to Ottawa. Well, we have to recognize that the same thing, the same sentiment, at least, and the statistics would, would show it. And I say that to you, David, humbly, because I'm sure you could demonstrate this a lot more effectively than I. But we have to do a better job of retention in Florenceville, Bristol, St. Quentin, Chipman, Carriquette. Miramichi, St. Stephen, it's very similar because they may have recruited, again, lack of a better term, and they may have done everything they could to try to help a family or families or people or potential workers come to those communities and stay in those communities, but they are challenged because many of them may say, well, I actually want to go to Fredericton or St. John or Moncton. So it's a very similar challenge that we feel in the larger centres of New Brunswick vis-a-vis Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, Ottawa. So we got to think that through and say to ourselves everything that I mentioned a while ago, um, and then some for, for rural parts of the province and for northern New Brunswick. We, we really need to find out how do we support them. They're, they're not going to have the same critical mass of a community of support from the same region of the world or, or country even that they're from in in any community in New Brunswick. That they would compared to Toronto, and is, and that is especially the case for rural parts of the province and and the north. So what can we do? What can what can we do to mitigate that? What can what can we offer them that the larger centers can? And how do we make this a societal project? All institutions, the citizenry, all contributing to figure this out. And the third and last thing I would say, obviously there's lots we could say, but but if I'm to pick a few. The third one would be, we need to listen to the communities on what they believe are their challenges and opportunities. We certainly tried to do that. David, you were a part of this uh, when we were in government through the New Brunswick Economic Growth Plan. We identified a dozen opportunities. And within that plan, and within those opportunities, we listened to regions. We had several of those opportunities uh, inserted into the plan because northern uh, and rural communities said they thought these were immense opportunities for them, such as uh, boosting new farmers, blueberry and maple syrup development, tourism, and so forth. So I would argue, obviously, that we would want Ottawa to listen to Atlantic Canada and the op- and the the opportunities that it feels that we feel we have to grow the economy and create create uh, economic wealth. So those would be the three things I would I would probably put forth as as being pivotal if we're going to help rural and northern New Brunswick be able to prosper. And I would certainly as as mentioned think those are three things that we would definitely be uh be be good to focus on trying to deliver from Ottawa for the Atlantic region.
0: So just one last question on that would you be prepared to recommend or if you were in government um specific incentives to live in northern or rural New Brunswick, in other words, lower taxes or free land or any kind of, because my sense of it is that when you try off of those things in New Brunswick, people get highly offended. But do you think there should be specific and targeted incentives for people to move uh, and companies to move into rural uh, and northern parts of the province?
2: Well, a few things. I mean, I'm going to dance around your question a little bit only because I just, I just think that might be, that might be, you know, the cart before the horse, if you will. So first off, I mean, if you, if you encourage somebody to go anywheres on a financial incentive, you're going to lose them on, on financial incentives, right? It's sort of like the old adage. If, if you win a customer on price, you're going to lose them on price. So. Maybe that gets them in the door, but I think it would be the wrong approach to think that that's enough. I believe that how well you can integrate the, the new Canadian into the community, the economic opportunity, not the financial incentive, the economic opportunity, meaning a job, a career, and, and something that they feel that, that really fulfills them, will go a lot further than a financial incentive. And the only other aspect I would add is if we're going to help encourage new Canadians to go and stay in rural and northern parts of the province, making sure that they have a a the potential for economic success, meaning that they can get a job, build a career is crucial. So I would also be very clear on tying the efforts to the communities that need a workforce, that need more workforce, and the communities that need a specific type of workforce, well, that's the type of, of individuals we should be trying to focus on, because if we can match them up, then that's going to be, I think, much better than a financial incentive. And and I know that I know that a financial incentive may may work, like I said, to get them in the door. But, but but my fear would be that at the end of the day uh it will not impact uh it will not positively impact retention uh and and it would risk then being seen as something that was was a waste of taxpayers money which obviously could set back the efforts that are being put in to increase immigration levels and and increase the retention of of new Canadians in the in the province.
0: So I have to ask you about municipal reform the government is currently they have a green paper out they're, they're they're doing uh uh they're having discussions around the province about municipal r- reform they seem to be um you know pretty focused on getting something done there i know this has been an issue for previous governments uh, the Sean graham government looked at it and and didn't really want to touch it um uh, i think allwards government had some discussions about it i know your government had some you know, papers prepared, some research done into local government reform. I guess the question for you is: what do you think? What would you like to see, and what do you think is politically doable, knowing the dynamics of this province around municipal uh, re- municipal reform?
2: Yeah, it's it's such an interesting and important question. So, so thank you. So, reform is necessary. What the reform should look like, and how we transition to this new reformed municipal system really needs to be robustly debated and and thought through i'm prepared to say uh, to add to what you just said david and say that there have been several governments over the last few years in the province that were not only thinking about it but i would argue most likely planning formally or informally to tackle municipal reform if they were given another mandate. I think the province has found itself with subsequent governments basically say, unfortunately, with our first mandate, we just didn't have the runway to have the proper discussion, debate, make sure that we can think this through, readjust, adjust some more get feedback, and and get this done before people go to the polls again. So there's no question that Premier Higgs and his government have been given a second mandate. It's evident that this is something that they want to do. And I would give them this piece of advice. I would have given them this piece of advice a few years back. I didn't have to because it seems like they are on top of it. If they want to do it, they would be wise, in my humble opinion, to start right away when you're starting up a mandate. And that's exactly what they did. And the reason for that, I think, is really important because I know, again, some people listening will say, oh, yeah, you know, that's political considerations above good policy. I don't see it like that at all. I really don't. I see it as people recognizing it, recognizing that it's a very, um, integrated conversation i mean it's an important one that has to be had it's complex there's a lot of moving pieces there's a lot of stakeholders that need to be engaged not just because you want them to be on side because you really sincerely need their ideas suggestions concerns comments and thoughts so the runway in which to do something that would be significant and also at least as much as possible, the right approach. And I say that because obviously something this massive will be bound to be a few few tweaks that will be needed in the future. You do You do need some runway. So the Higgs government clearly, I think, understands that. And that's why they move quite quickly to begin the process. My advice would be, as we stand here today, they should really ensure that it's a ground up exercise. It really has to be an approach in which communities are involved. When it comes to amalgamations, especially, I mean, there's other aspects to, to, to reform, but you, you really need the communities to help ensure that those making the decisions understand which communities should be paired up with who, what their needs are, their concerns are in a community where do the people, which other community do they see an attachment to? Which community do they see themselves uh, being being uh, formally attached to? Uh, what is sort of their epicenter? What is their hub? I mean, all of these things are are very important. And for those who, who would like to sort of maybe wrap their heads around it, think of when we do the electoral maps. There's a commission of people, usually always very, very, impressive competent and and um, very knowledgeable of the province and they go around they have all these consultations they listen to people talk about the electoral map for the provincial election or maybe federal election probably more complicated provincially and they and then they come up with a recommendation and after the recommendation that they put out the draft if you will they have tons of feedback and comments still that make a lot of sense and that they end up revising their map because of because of the comments and 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 suggestions, and I mean, they'll go to the point that people are looking at which roads and which which neighborhoods should be with with which community and and such. So it, it is a very exhaustive approach, but it has to be a ground up approach for it to be successful. <coughs> I would so, also su- okay, sorry, no, yeah, I would also suggest that they take a longer view. What I mean by that is they should tell themselves. Where do we think we need to be when it comes to municipal reform? And instead of saying, well, we need it to be done in this mandate, or we need it to be done in five years, 10 years, really take the long view. And what I think that will allow them to do is to really consider the problems that will stem from a transition. And and if they can mitigate some of the transitional challenges and ensure that they're mitigating the the potential negative unintended consequences that could be felt by New Brunswickers and certain groups of New Brunswickers, I think they'll be better off. And look, we've gone how many years now without municipal reform, if we have to wait maybe a little bit longer just because they want to give enough runway to ensure that this doesn't negatively impact New Brunswickers in this sort of transition to to where they want to be, I think that's worth it. Uh, I think patience is a virtue in this in this case. Um, make the decisions, of course, within the mandate and the runway that we talked about, but but then give some time for implementation. And again, that will give you more flexibility to support and help those that could find themselves in, in trickier spots because of the change.
0: So I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, definitely the runway piece. I, I do think that there's going to be some tough decisions there. I I think if you leave it to just sort of, you know, coalitions of communities trying to come together, like they did in Trakity, I think that's not going to cut the mustard. I think everybody should have a mayor. It's been a position of mine for many, many years. It's kind of a trite position, but still, I think local government matters. It's going to matter even more in the future, I think. So, um, so that's good insight. We, again, we could talk, forever on that but i do i have two more questions for you and i i do want to get to them absolutely the, f- the first one is around uh first nations and indigenous peoples um when i was in government there there seemed to be a considerable effort there there was you know the mechs that came forward had to had to illustrate how they would impact first nations and indigenous people uh there seemed to be quite an effort to 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 build stronger partnerships there and so on but i i it seems to me at least in the media, the public narrative now, and of course there's been some horrific things we've seen nationally, but it just, it seems to me the public narrative around the relationship between first nations and indigenous folks, um, uh, is, is challenging right now. And I did a podcast with the chief of Pebino, uh, Richardson, and I was so optimistic after that. I mean, it was so, he, he, you know, there's so much good going on up there in the North, uh, uh, east of the province, and the partnership with the Port of Beldoon, and and in green energy, and all of these things emanating out of the First Nation, and I was just just incredibly heartened by what was going on there. Uh, but in general, you know, when I pick up the paper or when I read the media, it, it, there seems to be a lot of tension right now. What are your thoughts after spending time in government? What are your thoughts around how we can strengthen that and put a more permanent, durable foundation? under that relationship moving forward?
2: Let me start off by saying, I think you make make a lot of compelling points um, and thank you for the comments. Our government certainly made a lot of effort, but I wanna be the first to say, even after the things that we put forward uh, during our mandate, there's still a lot of work to be done when it comes to indigenous reconciliation in New Brunswick and, and in the country. Uh, centuries of oppressive events, and actions towards indigenous people uh will take uh quite some time, a lot of effort and and, and a lot of uh a lot of people uh, stepping up to, to take the actions necessary uh to to um advance indigenous reconciliation. The the recent horrific news out of Kamloops reminds us of 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 the centuries of oppression and, and again I mean I say centuries because the length of time is is very relevant, but we shouldn't take that to say that it's in the far distance. It's it's just a few decades ago, there were horrific events. And even today, there's still systemic racism. And one thing that I, I think we're starting to understand as a society a bit more than before, so this, this leaves me with some optimism about addressing inequities and discrimination in the treatment of of Canadians and the treatment of indigenous people and, and addressing inequalities. It's the fact that we, I think we're starting as a society to understand more and more how injustices of the past have rippled effects into, into many generations, including to the people today. So the, the centuries of oppression, the things that happened just a few decades ago, the, the, the hurt the the pain, the horrendous events have an effect on indigenous people still to this day as as a as a community, but as individuals as well. and I think we're starting to get that concept a lot more, which which gives me some optimism now during our time in government i I was very pleased to have signed to have signed agreements with indigenous communities regarding revenue sharing education training, environmental protection and job opportunities for for first nations um but we we still have to recognize that that even again even if I'm proud of what we were able to do and, and I'd like to think we advanced uh advanced it um we weren't able to do everything that was needed and 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 no government will, but there has to be a clear uh determination and effort to continuously move the needle and and get better and do more so first off i would say we have to admit our mistakes and that means that we also have to look into those mistakes right it's one thing to say sorry and 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 that's important but sorry followed up by here's what we did wrong here's what this has done this is these are the consequences of this. There are direct consequences, indirect consequences. There are people we need to talk to and understand and be able to have the opportunity to understand what this has done to them. That's important. So when when somebody asks for an inquiry into something, when somebody asks a society, a government to look into a systemic, systemically racist type of system uh we we need to do those things. And if you don't do them, I, I fear that the message it sends is that either you don't care, it's not a priority of yours, or you know that even if there is an inquiry, you're gonna end up taking no action about it. So that's why you would say, Well, I don't really want an inquiry because because of all one of those reasons or all of them. So so very indirectly, implicitly, you're sending that message, which is obviously the wrong message to send. We need to continuously ask ourselves what mistakes were made? What mistakes are still being made? And how do we rectify? How do we start the, the, the long and important process of reconciliation with Indigenous people in Canada? And governments need to take, take the lead. But I want to be clear. I think other institutions have a role to play. But governments need to take the lead and do what they need to do, but also encourage others and lead by example so other institutions step up and and frankly i mean again people listening may say well it's 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 daunting i look i'm on board i i want to play my role and i want my government and i want institutions to play a role to advance indigenous reconciliation but it's so daunting i mean where do we start um i'm i'm obviously not going to to to, to speak on behalf of uh, any indigenous people but i certainly would point to the truth reconciliation commissions calls to action as as a good place for us to all start. The other piece of advice that I would give a government would be to try and and sorry, government, business, other institutions. So this this applies to all of them. I mean probably more so governments and business, but it but it really does apply to all institutions. They should have the 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 policy if you will to develop a relationship with indigenous people before you want or need something from them. You, you want to develop a relationship with Indigenous people before you need to engage them on a specific topic that is important to your government or business or community. You, you want to have a dialogue with them. And you don't want to just be seen to say, well, okay, I, I want to work with you now because we'd like to advance this natural resource project, this energy project. We'd like to do X, Y, Z, and, and we sort of have to consult with you, so let's build a relationship. And and I certainly tried to have our government do that, but if I'm to be honest, I don't think we did enough. I think I think more could have been done. I think I could have done more on that regard too. And sometimes time gets away from you, and and uh, and, and and often it's hard to find the time to get everything that you'd like to get done. Um, but but with that said, it, it has to be a priority. So I, I can sympathize with that argument, but I, you know, I'll be the first to admit that I should have. I should have done more on that front, and our government could have done more, although I think we we moved the needle a bit, but but more could have been done and by developing that relationship, then when there are challenges, when there are opportunities you're trying to seize and you and you you want to work with indigenous people on it, it it's going to be I think a lot easier and a lot more effective to be able to go to the person, go to the community, talk it through because you have that level of trust, you have a relationship that you've developed. So That would be a piece of advice that I would give uh, to to governments and uh, and I say it very humbly in the sense that it's, it's a piece of advice because um, I, I did try to do that but i, I could have done better so I, I give it very humbly and and hope that governments will will continue to build on what we tried to do and 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 do even better than we were able to do because it is such an important topic and and something I think Canadians want and and the last point I'll make is on that i I feel. Canadians are more open than ever to have governments and other institutions step up in a significant, real way to to help Indigenous communities deal with with what we've created for them, help them be able to to um, be able to, to advance their culture, to be able to um, have economic opportunity, and in some communities, as sad as it's, as it is to say, the basic basic needs that we all have. Like running water, so so I think Canadians more so than probably ever are are really uh, are really keen to do what they can and to have governments and institutions do what they can to advance Indigenous reconciliation, and and look some of it may be stemming from the horrific news out of Kamloops and 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 other things that have happened or that have come to light and and things that we've realized over the last few years, um, so it's not necessarily coming from from a good. It's not uh, it's not being uh, sparked from from good events uh, to say the least, but but what is good is that there are, I think is a real willingness and and governments again who, who work on behalf of, of of the people should should take the take the uh, heed the call and and take action to be able to advance what Canadians clearly want us to do and and that's to advance Indigenous reconciliation.
0: To put you on the spot, should there be a First Nations represented in ca- in cabinet? In the provincial cabinet,
2: It's an interesting idea. Often, when you have an idea like that, I think you should just go to what the principle is and And the principle is that you you want to really embed an indigenous perspective into into decision making. So I do think that there are many ways in which you can do that. And frankly, probably uh, there are probably there's probably a need for many of those types of initiatives to happen. Um, as you mentioned, having the lens of, of, a, of a memorandum of executive council come to the cabinet with, with a clear indication of what this policy investment program, whatever it may be, or this decision will have on Indigenous people is, is one way to do that. Uh, so, so definitely need more of that. Um, it would be fairly easy and interesting to have a very senior advisor uh an indigenous senior advisor um whether they attend cabinet or not or whether they're actually a part of cabinet or not um are are important details for sure but i think the principle could be could be uh could be um realized through a few programs and 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 policies which i would advocate are definitely necessary and and not to repeat myself but i really do think canadians uh really want to see action when it comes to indigenous reconciliation and and expect governments to lead the way.
0: So we try to keep these talks to around an hour, we're already at an hour and 15 minutes. So, (laughs) uh, (laughs) but I'm sure there's lots of good content in here. I'm sure people have stayed here till the end. So the last question I want to ask you is, uh, somebody told me once that you were in politics so young, Premier so young, that you could literally sit out the next two decades, come back in, and still be kind of median age when it comes to the, an average, a typical politician in Canada. So, <laughs> do you uh, do you see politics again in your future?
2: The the uh, the honest answer is I hope not, uh, and, and I say it that way because I, I and we touched upon this. I mean, it, it is very difficult, and and I think it's becoming more difficult. Uh, I, I saw it become increasingly uh, challenging from when I. Officially started, I guess, in 2012. We'll, we'll say that's when I officially started with the launch of my campaign to become leader of the Liberal Party until uh, 2019, um, when when I uh, resigned as an MLA. During that time, I saw it get more difficult, and I think there's a few reasons for that. But the main one is is social media, uh, and and I think it, it's it's making it more and more difficult um, to to be an elected office. Because you have criticisms coming at you, some that are completely unchecked, and and we're all human beings, and and it can drain you, and sometimes it can hurt you. So I think it's becoming more and more difficult. That said, one of your first questions was about whether I miss politics, and there's no question you miss you miss parts of it, because it is fulfilling, and and you are in such a privileged position to make a difference. It. It's almost overwhelming when when you go into the legislature, and I'm sure it's the case when you go into parliament, and when you sit in the cha- the, the councillors' chambers as a uh, as a member of a municipal government, to think that you you were sent there by your community, by your your friends, your family, the people that uh, that that call the same community as you home. I, it's such an honor. So, um, although I I say I hope not, I I care deeply about public policy. So I will definitely be involved in in some shape or form in trying to influence public policy. And I, I hope that it will be from the sidelines of politics. Uh, but but my, uh, my family and friends know me too well that I'm very passionate about this. And if ever I felt that I uh, was the right person at the right time to try to make the right difference, I may be compelled to do it again. But that said, the answer is still I hope not.
0: Brian Gallant, thanks for joining us today on the Insights Podcast.
2: Thank you, David.
0: You've been listening to the latest episode of Insights on the Huddle
1: Podcast Network, hosted by Don Mills and David Campbell. Mark Legere and Liam Floyd helped produce this episode. You can subscribe by searching for Huddle Insights on podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. And we care about what you think, so please give the show a rating and a review. Don and David will be back next week.